Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Faith and I both have fairly deep roots in the restoration movement. Hers are much deeper than mine. Going back five generations to the founding of the movement, her ancestor traveled with raccoon John Smith throughout Kentucky. Mine go back, I know, at least to my grandparents. I don't know before that. But as far as I can remember, in my entire church experience, seminary, Bible college, I never heard anyone explain the nonviolence of the gospel and the fact that the Christian church was traditionally pacifist. And as far as I'm aware, I never met a pacifist before I became one. I'm the first one I met. (laughs) Yet the restoration movement was in the beginning and several generations, for several generations, theologically it was Anabaptist or one of the peace churches. And the key leaders in the original movement held to a nonviolent reading of the New Testament. And this was at a time when it actually caused them a great deal of trouble. David Lipscomb would be threatened with lynching a couple of times. And the the movement held to doctrines which are shared by most peace churches or by those who hold to nonviolence. And so the turn to adult baptism, the separation from government institutions, the recognition of the church as the kingdom, These are all shared understandings of peace churches. And by peace churches, I mean those churches traditionally Anabaptists, but even actually there were peace churches even prior to the Protestant Reformation. And this understanding, though, in the Christian church was not because of any connection historically with peace churches. It was simply based on their own reading of the New Testament and the circumstance in which they found themselves. And so the Campbells and Stone, they believe revelation and reason are not contradictory, and one only has to set aside traditions, councils. In other words, they believe that we could come to Scripture and see what it means on our own. And one of the shared understandings of the peace churches that they came to is the clear demarcation between the church and the world. And so many of the leaders of the movement were deeply impacted by the institution of slavery. David Lipscomb, who was located in Nashville, he refused to support slavery or the war. He was just unpopular with everybody. And he compared all human government to what we're about to read in uh, the book of Revelation. And so he turns to the book of Revelation And the message of the book is very similar to the message, you know, remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? The idea that they delivered to the king, King Nebuchadnezzar, 
Do not worship the king or the empire or conform to the empire's evil decrees. They refuse to do it. Even if the empire kills you, stand firm and resist until death. And this is what Revelation says. Look at chapter 2, verse 10. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you. And you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful even to the point of death. And I will give you life as your victor's crown. So Revelation, the book of Revelation with its stark contrast. Maybe it's the most political book of the New Testament. The politics of Babylon and the politics of Jerusalem are contrasted. The politics of of the Antichrist and the politics of Jesus Christ are contrasted. The politics of the demonic powers and the principalities and the politics of the judgment of God, you know, as sovereign, these are contrasted. The politics of death and the politics of life. Now maybe we could say the whole Bible is political because it's all about nations and institutions and ideologies and causes of the world and the kingdom of God. I mean, that is the Bible. And Revelation then calls upon Christians to resist the godlike pretensions, especially in the first century of the Roman Empire. But John knew that to speak openly, of, of course, of Rome, uh, would risk the lives of his readers, just as it had caused the death of all the apostles. We think he's the only surviving apostle. Rome has wiped them out. And they've persecuted John. The tradition is that he was on the Isle of Patmos. And they torture him. And he has visions. And the visions are this book that we're reading. But part of his reason may be for writing in the metaphor that he does, in the imagery that he does, he wants to cloak Rome, you know, he doesn't say Rome, he says Babylon. And so he doesn't want to risk anybody's lives by reading his book. And of course, Babylon has equally pretentious and brutal ambition. We just read in our Sunday school how Babylon comes in and destroys Jerusalem. And his readers understood what he meant. Look at chapter 18, verse 2 to 3. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling for demons and a haunt for every impure spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable animal. For all nations have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries. The kings of the earth have committed adultery with her, and the merchants of the earth grew rich from excessive luxuries. And so for those reasons, John, in the next verse, he charges his readers in verse 4, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not receive any of her plagues. For her sins are piled high to heaven, and God has remembered her crimes. God is going to judge. And in fact, God is going to bring about the destruction, John wrote, 
about the utter destruction of Babylon. He heard, he says in chapter 19, 1 to 4, what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for true and just are his judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her blood of his servants. And again they shouted, Hallelujah. The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. The 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne. And they cried, Amen. Hallelujah. And so Rome, through its brutal tyranny, has sought to usurp the throne of God. But as he says in chapter 21, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. But there's more in Revelation. Look at chapter 21, 1 to 4. He contrasts two cities, the blasphemous city of Babylon with the new Jerusalem. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things have passed away. As one writer has described it with its stark contrast between the demonic city of Babylon and the heavenly city of Jerusalem, but Babylon represents the moral character of every nation and of every principality which is or which was or which may be in every period of human history. Babylon is the city of death. Jerusalem is the city of salvation. And Jerusalem here, of course, not literal Jerusalem, but God's Jerusalem, the church, the city of God. Babylon is the dominion of alienation, babel, slavery, war. Jerusalem is the community of reconciliation, sanity, freedom, peace. Babylon is a harlot. The word here is from the Old Testament, the idea of adulteress, not faithful to God. And Jerusalem is the bride of God. Babylon is the realm of demons and foul spirits. And Jerusalem, the dwelling place in which all creatures are fulfilled. Babylon is an abomination to the Lord, and Jerusalem is the holy nation. Babylon is doomed. Jerusalem is redeemed. And so the Babylon of Revelation is archetypical of all nations, is the idea, because of the nature of nations and human governments. They're all marked with the mark of Babylon by what they do. Babylon's futility, you know, her, first of all, there's idolatry. There's a false worship. It may be literal idolatry, or it may be the idolatry of the nation state. Her boast of moral ultimacy, her
her reputation, her capabilities, her authority, her glory, that becomes a kind of value in and of itself. And the moral pretenses of imperial Rome. She makes millennial claims, as do many nations. Think of Nazism. Think of the arrogance of Marxist dogma. Think of the insistence that America be number one among all nations. There's versions of Babylon's idolatry. And the point is that all nations partake of this to some degree or another. All share in this grandiose view of the nation by which the principality assumed the place of God in the world. And so David Lipscomb reads the book of Revelation and writes, what marks this universal Babylon of human government is that it always, number one, rests upon the power of the sword. Number two, the authority of the sword in its mission of strife and bloodshed. This marks all government, the strife of war. And it marks the government of the world, but not the government of Christ. This is the difference. The fall of Babylon is the downfall, he says, of all human governments. And the establishment of the kingdom of God will entail the destruction of human institutions and authorities. That's the picture in Revelation. And then the reinstantiation of God's rule. Human rule has displaced God's rule. And one can either serve God's rule or the principalities and powers of this world. But each realm is controlled, and I'm quoting here, by its own peculiar spirit, Lipskins says, that abides in it and animates each of its members. The government one participates in and supports is determinative of what one worships. Here's a quote from Lipscomb. God, through his gentle, meek, loving, self-sacrificing son, established the church of Christ and imparted to it his spirit, to dwell in, animate, guide, and control that body and every member thereof. Whoever puts himself under the guidance or control of a different spirit ceases to be a member of the church or body of Christ. Pretty strong language. As with the book of Revelation, Lipscomb pictures the final judgment as quote, involving the complete and final destruction, the utter consuming of the last vestige of human governments and institutions. Now, Lipskin was in Nashville, and this was during the Civil War. Nashville would be consumed by the war. And he writes to the president. He writes and explains, we are a peace church. We are a church that will not participate in violence. The Confederate's president listens, and then he writes to the general from the Union troops that occupy Nashville and explains the same thing. And both of them recognize the Church of Christ, our church in the South, was neutral, nonviolent, and was so recognized as conscientious objectors in the Civil War. He explains to them, and I'm quoting here, in the beginning of the late strife that so fearfully desolated our country, much was said about our enemies. I protested constantly 
that I had not a single enemy and was not an enemy to a single man north of the Ohio River. I have never been brought into collision with one. But very few knew such a person as myself existed. Yet these thousands and hundreds of thousands who knew not each other were made enemies to each other and thrown into fierce and bloody strife were imbued with the spirit of destruction one toward the other through the instrumentality of human governments. And so he's saying the mission of Christ's kingdom is to put down and destroy all these kingdoms. These kingdoms built on the shedding of blood. Christ's kingdom is set to destroy everything that exercises rule, authority, or power on earth and to displace it with the rule and authority of God. Christ's servants cannot enter, he says, into league with the very kingdoms which he is set against and set to destroy. Christians, he said, should have no role in government and need only submit to the degree that they can, that they're allowed to, in their highest obligation to obey God. And so David Lipscomb, Thomas, and Alexander Campbell, they're going to make a clear demarcation between the governments, between the world. Now part of this, they also make a clear demarcation between the Old Testament and the New Testament. There is the violence in the Old Testament, but their idea is that's of the old covenant. That's of the old system, but now we follow Christ. And so in the first issue of the Christian Baptist, all of these guys seem to have their own journals, their theological magazines. And Campbell writes about the vulgar contradiction of in war creating orphans and widows and then manifesting the purity of religion. Oh, now we can take care of the orphans and widows we've created. Here's what he says. Christian general with 10,000 soldiers and his chaplain at his elbow, preaching as he says the gospel of goodwill among men and praying that the Lord would cause them to fight valiantly and render their efforts successfully in making as many widows and orphans as will afford opportunity for others to manifest the purity of their religion by taking care of them. In his address on war, he asked whether one Christian nation can go to war with another Christian nation. And he defines a Christian nation as a nation that has a Christian in it. If you've got a Christian in it, you're a Christian nation. Of course, that renders the whole thing absurd. And then he asked whether one part of the Christian church in one nation should wage war on another part of the church in another nation. In other words, can the church have a war with the church? This is what he says. With this simple view of the subject, where is the man so ignorant of the letter and spirit of Christianity as to answer this question in the affirmative? Is there a man of ordinary Bible education in this city or commonwealth who will affirm that Christ's church in England may of right wage war against Christ's church in America. And of course, hopefully everybody understands the answer is no, we shouldn't do that. He also suggests there's no such thing as a just war. 
as those who are being killed are not those who are guilty and those who are fighting are not responsible for declaring the war. This is what he says. War is not now nor has it ever been a process of justice. It never was a test of truth, a criterion of right. It is either a mere game of chance or a violent outrage of the strong upon the weak. Need we any other proof that a Christian people can in no way whatever countenance a war as a proper means of redressing wrongs, of deciding justice, or of settling controversies among nations? And so like Campbell, Barton Stone, who was one of the leaders also, would come maybe slowly to nonviolence. But for Barton Stone, actually, who himself had owned slaves and then released them, he went down, he visited some churches in South Carolina, and he describes how repulsed he was at the treatment of black people. This is what he says. But in the midst of the, all this glory, my soul sickened at the sight of slavery in more horrid forms than I'd ever seen it before. Poor Negroes, some chained to their work, some wearing iron collars, all half naked and followed and driven by the merciless lash of a gentleman overseer. Distress appeared scowling in every face. And so the impact that slavery would have for Stone, like that of Lipscomb, and actually many in the Restoration Movement. Maybe it's parallel. Do you know who the great abolitionist Frederick Douglass was? I think it's the same spirit, and this is the way he describes it. He says, the church of this country is not only indifferent to the wrongs of the slave, it actually takes sides with the oppressors. It is a religion which favors the rich against the poor, which exalts the proud above the humble, which divides mankind into two classes, tyrants and slaves, which says to the man in chains, stay there, and to the oppressor, oppress on. It is a religion which may be professed and enjoyed by all the robbers and enslavers of mankind. It makes God a respecter of persons, denies the fatherhood of the race, and tramples in the dust the great truth of the brotherhood of man. All this we affirm to be true of the popular church and the popular worship of our land and nation. A religion, a church, and a worship which on the authority of inspired wisdom we pronounce to be an abomination in the sight of God. And so Douglas claimed there was a difference so wide between the Christianity of Christ and the Christianity of this land that, quote, to receive the one as good, as pure and holy is of necessity to reject the other as bad, corrupt, and wicked. To be the friend of the one is of necessity to be the enemy of the other. And so what was clear to Douglas, who was actually a runaway slave, was also clear to Stone. He was inundated with the same images, and he came to the same conclusions of Douglas that the slave-holding, women-whipping, 
cradle plundering, partial and hypocritical Christianity of this land. This is precisely the impetus for Stone's reform movement, for restoration of the church. And Stone not only turned against slavery, but against the laws and values of the United States. And really it's the beginning of his theological journey that is going to shape the restoration movement. We might describe it as a kind of apocalyptic Christianity. This is the way he describes it. We must return to the government, laws, and ordinances of our rightful king, the Lord Jesus, before we shall ever be gathered together and become worthy subjects of his kingdom. We must unite our energies, advance the government and kingdom of our Lord, and meddle not with the government of this world, whether human, ecclesiastical, or political, or civil. All others aside from that of heaven will be put down by a firm decree of our Lord before the end come. And so Stone would hold to this ultimate conviction, non-participation in the affairs of the world. And it cost him greatly. He described, you know, he was actually the preacher of two Presbyterian churches and was earning a, quite an income. And he decided he could not do it any longer. And he was a farmer, and he describes he would be preaching and teaching all day, and then at night he would go out into his cornfield and be picking weeds and trying to get his corn in when all of his neighbors were far ahead of him. So he just eked out a living. The price of this conviction that he came to, and that is that the laws and ordinances of Jesus Christ alone are going to obtain unity. And so my question here, this is the early Christian church. This is the history of our church. What happened <laughs> to this early understanding of the Restorationists? Because for the most part, the contemporary majority have succumbed to evangelical beliefs, the Gnostic tendencies of a kind of privatized religion. I don't know, maybe it was the problem of a kind of rationalistic approach. Maybe just the idea that by common sense we could come to agreement. Maybe it was the contextual nature of the nonviolence, you know, that it shifted with the context. And maybe it just shifted into oblivion with the heirs of the first leaders in the movement. There was certainly a feeling of antagonism with the world. And we've lost that antagonism. And I think that's not a good thing. We even have one restoration movement preacher who served as president of the United States. Maybe with the ending of slavery, perhaps the repulsion of the world was not so obvious, which is a very strange thing to say in this day in which racism is clearly the plague of our land. Maybe the two world wars would impact all three branches, but we know that the peace church that was the founding of this movement disappeared. Maybe we focus too intensely on the form and structure of the church and we did not preserve this unique content. I don't know the cause or whatever the cause was, but we know that the sense of restoring the peaceable kingdom of the New Testament, the very thing, you know, that's why we call ourselves the restoration movement, that has been abandoned by the restoration movement. 
And so if we are to be the movement of which this church was originally a part, if we are to be true to New Testament Christianity, if we would really restore the New Testament church, I believe we must preach and teach and testify to the gospel of peace. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org. Dot org.